Welcome back to Unframed, a podcast which hosts talks and conversations about South African art and artists. I am your host, Anthea Pockroy. This interview with U.S. Bosland, who is one of the directors at Stevenson in Cape Town, was recorded many months ago, and I must apologize to both U.S. and the listeners for taking so long in releasing this episode. I was finishing my master's, so Unframed was on a bit of a hiatus, but uh, we are back and uh, very excited for the program that is up ahead over the next few months. So in this interview, I ask Joost more about his research about the artist interview, as a format or genre, and its possible empathetic value in art criticism. Enjoy listening to my conversation with Joost. Thank you so much to Joost for joining me for this episode of Unframed. Joost Bosland is a director and curator at Stevenson Gallery, and he's based in Cape Town. I'm really excited to interview you for a few reasons. So when I first started my podcast, I told David Andrew about it, and then he told me about your master's thesis that you had just written on the artist interview as a genre or as a format. Um, so firstly, I think it's really interesting to be doing a meta interview, an interview about an interview, and I know that in your paper you revel in that satisfaction as well about the interview. It's almost an entire subgenre of interviews are interviews with people who interview. Exactly, and we'll talk more about that a bit later. But I'm also excited about the prospect of bringing an academic paper into such an accessible format as the podcast, because I think academia, we, we write these, these academic papers and they sit on dusty shelves in libraries, even though there is an online access now, but, uh, but no one really reads them. And I think that accessibility of art criticism is something that you written a lot about in your paper as well, which we'll talk about as well. So just to begin, can I ask you to introduce yourselves to our listeners? Who is your Bosland? I heard you say I'm a director and curator in your introduction, and I, I really try and stay away from the, the letter word. I jokingly call myself the suit sometimes. So I, I work in art gallery, I sell art. I'm, I'm part of the team or the collective here at, at Stevenson. As loyal followers of your podcast will know, we're owned by a collective of 11 uh, partners. Um, and this really was my first job out of varsity. I've been here since as an intern uh, with the gallery in 2005, and then I started full-time in 2006. Wow, it's a long time. So yeah, this is, this is really the only thing I know how to do. So why do you avoid the term curator? It is such a loaded term, and I also think it's a term better reserved for, for people who, who curate, if I, you know, people who make thematic exhibitions, who do biennales. I think using it in the context of a, of a commercial gallery can, can sound quite pretentious quite quickly. As I, as I mentioned, my entry point to you, besides the work you do through the gallery, was this thesis that you wrote about the artist interview. You wrote that you're an avid consumer and producer of the artist interview and through your role in the gallery that you've engaged with the artist interview as a format. What is it about the artist interview that appeals to you so strongly? For me, the artist interview offers this really wonderful dual role of, of being a primary source. You really get to hear the artist speak, so you can do something with that information later on. But the best artist interviews also become, become text and become art criticism in themselves. What I like, and it goes back to your introduction, is that artists very often stay away from theory when they're speaking about their work, so the way academics or even critics write about work 
is very different from the way artists actually speak and think about their work. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, that's, that's why I do what I do. I'm completely fascinated by artists. Um, it's a privilege to be here to sort of, you know, help them do the dishes, so to speak, and, and to get an insight into what's actually going on I think in large part because I have no artistic impulse whatsoever myself. I've never made art. Um, I have no ambition in that direction. I don't think I'd be very good at it. So these, these, these wonderful people who make the world such a beautiful place are just an endless source of fascination. I think the artist interview is the closest thing there is to getting inside their head. Mm. Um, in May this year in Joburg, there was a conversation between the two art critics, Ashraf Jamal and Sean O'Toole. And Jamal said he's not interested in the autobiographical notion of the artist. It's about the art. What is your opinion about this? And, and does the artist interview act as a sort of biography? And is it important to know about the artist in order to respond to their work or to hear their, the artist's voice in order to read their work? I think Ashraf is right. Fundamentally, it is about the art and autobiography plays a distant sort of second role or biography plays a distant second role. Um, at the same time, I, I've been reading, um, I think it was called Art News, this, this South African art magazine, sort of the forerunner of Art South Africa that was published in the 70s, uh, late 60s, 70s. And there, this notion that biography really didn't matter was very prevalent because, of course, they didn't want biography to matter for very political reasons. So I think just ignoring it altogether is a pitfall too. It's just one of the many elements that, that make up what work means or what it can mean. So I think Ashraf is you know, overstating the case slightly to make his point, which he's very good at, and, 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 and he's not wrong. But that doesn't mean biography doesn't matter at all. It's about adding all these layers, and, and the more you know about, um, about the work, the more you can make sense of what it all might mean. Uh, I'll never forget Lisa van der Watt, who I studied with at UCT, said that you can go and watch a, a soccer game And if you don't know the rules, it means less to you than if you know the rules. And if you know exactly how offside works, it means even more to you. And if you know who that player is and how he got to be selected for the team, or maybe he was trans, then it means even more to you. So I I don't think it's very different in in art. Of course, it's ultimately about the soccer that gets played on the field. But it matters if it's Ronaldo who scores or if it's someone else who scores. It matters to the narrative, to the meaning, to the, the fiction we all create together around this enterprise. You speak a lot in your paper about art criticism versus art history. How might you define those two terms, or how might you differentiate between them? I don't know if I'm the right person to define those terms. I think there's much sort of smarter people who've been thinking about that for much longer than I have. I, I used it, basically the, the, the differentiation I used in my paper is art criticism is people writing about art being made now, reviews of shows trying to make sense of it, and an art history is, you know, the lives of the artist, the history, the, the succession of different artistic practices, movements. Um, so it was more pragmatic distinction than, than, than a very theoretical one, I think. And then you spoke about how art criticism becomes art history, you know, when it's not being read in a contemporary moment and it's being read in the future. And Exactly. An I mean, I've been, I've been recently reading the, the, the Weekly Mail's art sections from the late 80s, at the National Library here in Cape Town. And at the time, you know, they were art criticism, but reading them now, they are part of art history. They're not necessarily art historical writing, but they've become part of art history because those debates have been incorporated into 
you know, successive, successive artistic practices. You refer to James Elkin and saying that art criticism is at once massively produced and massively ignored. You also mentioned that the use of jargon in art criticism becomes elitist and inaccessible to a broader audience. Do you think that the artist interview offers a more accessible entry point to talk and learn about art? What is the reason for your conviction that this is the most apt format for this time and this place? I think it's largely from personal experience. I can answer it in two, two ways, and we try and do both. My wife and I really like wine. Sort of artists work for me, and, and wine is something we do in our free time. And a lot of writing about wine can be very alienating, especially if you're new to the thing, if you don't, haven't studied it or you don't know much about it, and you're surrounded by people who know more. Um, and then we went to a tasting once where the winemaker was speaking. And here's this young guy, Ryan Mostert was his, his name, Terra Cura Wines. And he spoke with such passion about why he did certain things. And, and all of that sort of wine jargon fell by the wayside. And it was just like a guy, a bunch of grapes and a, a tank and a vision. And I realized that experience must be quite similar um, or imagined that experience might be quite similar to someone who likes art but hasn't studied it, doesn't have the time to make, make it their prime object of study, and goes into a gallery and is met with a, a press release full of, sort of French theory and, and lots of things referencing other things. And it can be a very alienating experience. And, and I think when people hear the artist speak, all of that falls away. Um, and we've seen it with responses. We've now published two volumes of artist interviews here at the gallery, uh, nine weeks uh, with Hansi Momadou Gordon and, and now recently with Sinaz Priya, uh, nine more weeks. And the response to those from people is just so warm. It's like finally something I can read, something I can take with me on the plane. And I think we in the art world revel sometimes in that, that sort of exclusive network and, and the jargon, and it, it serves a very important purpose. I'm not saying all of it's nonsense, though a lot of it is. But I do think sometimes we owe this generosity to people just outside that little circle. I often think of my parents when I go to a museum, because my parents have been going to museums for most of their adult lives, been dragging me to museums as a kid. But they're not art collectors or, or students of art. And I often think, like, how can we make this interesting to them instead of just you and me as we're sitting here with our baggage and our background? Speaking, speaking about generosity, your paper suggests that a lot of art criticism is, is often very cutting and potentially damaging to the individuals who are being criticized. And you pose, which is the title of your paper, a hermeneutics of empathy as an alternative to this. You ask what other ways of writing about art might be possible and how can we give artists the benefit of the doubt? So to the former question, what possible alternatives are there? And to the latter, why is it important to give artists the benefit of the doubt? Uh, I, I leaned very heavily in the paper on, on someone called Rita Felsky, who's a literary scholar, American literary scholar, who sort of critiqued critique or the tradition of critique. She asked, why is it that we're so, what was the word? Why is it that we are so incredibly articulate about our dislikes, but, but mum about our likes? And I think there is this tradition in, in writing, particularly academic writing, to point out flaws, to show how work is, how work is complicit in the very systems it's trying to critique. And sometimes it's very important to do that. And I, I don't want to dismiss that entire tradition, but it's only part of the full range of possible criticism. 
So I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting to get rid of that and, and replace it with sort of feel-good, supportive criticism that loves everything the artist is trying to do, not at all. But I think if you're only doing the one, then you're, then you're losing something in the process. So what can it be? I think it's when, when you're writing a review of a show, you owe it to the artist and to your audience to really know what you're writing about. Um, you can do an artist interview, that's one way of getting the artist point across, but that's not the only way, I think. But there's a sort of tradition of, of getting satisfaction from pointing out what is wrong. And, and yeah, I think that's limiting us. I don't know if you can maybe elaborate more on the how, why is it important to give artists benefit of the doubt? I think the people we are thinking about, writing about, working with, representing in my case, you know, pour their, their heart and their soul into this practice. They've committed to this completely unimaginable thing, this thing that, that is entirely fictional and, and only exists because of sheer determination and sheer commitment. And if somebody's put that much effort in just to say, oh, but, you know, they're, they're just... They're just making the status quo look prettier. It's, 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 it's too easy. And again, that doesn't mean sometimes it isn't true. But I, but I do think sometimes we're, we're too, quick, too quick to do that. The same thing as, you know, the, if you're critiquing the table that we're sitting next to now, maybe it's a really terrible table and the design is very flawed. But somebody spent a lot of time designing it, making it, crafting it. We owe a certain amount of engagement with it to the object and to the maker. Seems like an interesting battle, really, because we we exist in such a competitive contemporary art industry, and if there's, it's, it seems like empathy is not the the go-to mechanism. And I mean, I'm, I'm interested to hear you say that this competitive contemporary art industry, because I I don't know if I see it that way. I don't know if it feels very it's it, very competitive. I don't know if there's you know it's not a zero-sum game. It's not the attention or the praise one artist is getting can't go to another artist anymore because there's a limitless amount of attention and, or money for that matter. There's, yeah. there's, always, there's a lot more money in the world than is currently being spent on art. So if money gets spent on one particular artist, it doesn't mean that that money isn't spent on other artists. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how competitive it really is. So why, why did you use that I don't adjective? Know, I, I guess I'm speaking from a more grassroots artist level of being an artist and, and knowing that especially in South Africa, that there are a limited amount of exhibition gallery opportunities or exhibition opportunities in galleries that are looking to represent artists. So um, I'm surrounded by communities of artists that, you know, graduates from, from art school or from other training colleges and very few opportunities and platforms for them to, to actually show at or be represented by, you know, and ultimately you can correct me with the numbers, but I'm sure the galleries only take on maybe 10 artists a year, maybe, maybe that's even too many. All artists, all all galleries combined maybe take on 10 new artists a year. Exactly. So in that sense, um, as an artist, I would... But that's putting, I mean, this this is something that irritates me to know, and um, it's put the galleries on a pedestal and gives us a centrality to the system that we really shouldn't have. If you're describing all these people with these amazing skill sets and educations not being able to crack it, those are all people that should be starting project spaces, that should be doing their own things. And, and by just defining oneself based on what galleries do and don't show, I think is, is really limiting. And I think you'll find 
many artists, again, thinking of art history, that we now think of as incredibly central and amazing and important, that struggled to get gallery representation the first 10, 20 years of their, their artistic career. I think it's a very new phenomenon that if you, you know, you're not represented by a gallery yet in your late 20s, then you failed as an artist. Um, I mean, look at the show that we have up at the gallery right now, Brighton Breitenbach. This is his first gallery show in South Africa in, I think, ever, to be honest. And he's turning 80 next year. That doesn't mean he has failed as a painter. So, I, I, yeah, I find, I find the sort of emphasis on, on galleries and competition to be represented by galleries really problematic and, and limiting. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point to make for artists that are listening to here from this point of view. But I do think you know, starting project spaces and uh, creating your own group exhibitions and stuff in this country is incredibly difficult. The funding is very it's scarce. It's not any easier anywhere else. I think, I think we like to romanticize how difficult it is to do things here. It's just as difficult anywhere else. Um, but I had the privilege last year of visiting the Lagos Biennial, the first edition ever. And it was, I called it this morning, I called it the MacGyver Biennial. It was done on an absolute shoestring, and it was an amazing, really big international contemporary group exhibition. So I, I, I think it's too easy to say, oh, it's so difficult to do things in this country, because everywhere you look, there are people. I mean, you started a podcast in this country, and you're now on, on episode number nine and going, and you mentioned there might even be funding and offering, and so it's possible. No, I hear you. I hear you. I'm also coming from a space of running a nonprofit organization, Assemblage, for eight years. So, and you know, I have experienced the challenges of that. So, it's, it's hard. Yeah, I'm not it's saying, not but, easy. It's but not it's easy. not easy running a commercial gallery either. Yeah. Let me tell you. Yeah. Um, I don't think. I mean, the scale might be slightly different, but I think fundamentally the challenges aren't that different. Actually, most people don't care about contemporary art here or anywhere else in the world, frankly. And I think we all need to embrace that rather than be discouraged by it. This is a question I was actually wanting to ask you, but I, I felt like it didn't really fit into the, the flow of the, the interview. But seeing as though we've gone on a bit of a tangent, I'm totally going to throw it in there. I, I wanted to know how working in, in a contemporary art gallery and one of the most important art galleries in the country, how do you define contemporary art? Um, I know it's a big question um, because Vansa did a report in 2010 and they termed kind of the opposite of contemporary art, most art. <laughs> yeah. And I love that term because I think it really says what, <laughs> what it That's is. That's fantastic. That's um, wonderful. But That's wonderful. How, how would you kind of talk about contemporary art? Imagine I was a, a client that kind of wanted to know. I mean, at the most basic level, contemporary art is art that's being made now, right? And that's, so that includes most art. Yeah, most art is, yeah. Um, that is not the art we as a gallery are necessarily interested in. That's not the art I myself am necessarily interested in. I think what, what we're interested in is positions that, that somehow take the conversation further, that somehow do something that hasn't been done before, but in dialogue with, with the international tradition of, of art history. Uh, but how do you find contemporary art? It's, it's, you know, there's a beautiful line from the American Supreme Court about how to define pornography. So I, don't, I don't know how to define it, but I recognize it when I see it. I think the same is true for contemporary art, really. Then it brings the whole question of like, who's looking, who announces it, or who pronounces it. And that's what makes it so absolutely wonderful. It's this one terrain that's it's this complete fiction we've all created together and we're not even sure about the rules. I mean, I mentioned soccer earlier. At least in soccer, the rules are very clear. If you score more goals, you progress to the next 
round. In art, that's not even there. We, we spend most of our time fighting about what the rules of the game are. And then we still have to play the game at the same time. And that, that, that's, for me, what makes it such an amazing imaginary space. I mean, I went to the Norval Foundation yesterday. You know, here we are in supposedly a recession and this big, massive, very ambitious space for contemporary art has been built in a valley. And on the one side, you've got the American consulate that looks like a military base. The other side, you've got Paulsmore. And then the other side, you've got a golf course. And, and I think there's a wine estate somewhere. So it's, just, it's all this complete, wonderful fiction that we're creating together. And I think that that's really amazing. And I don't think that privilege exists in many other industries. So when I hear sort of art graduates sitting at home grumpy that galleries don't represent them, you know, try being a, an engineering graduate. And, and if you then can't find a job, it's infinitely more frustrating because there isn't that space for, you can't just go and like imagine your own engineering company and, and your own theory of engineering the way you can with art. So if we go back to, to the role of the art critic, uh, we spoke earlier about what alternative ways of writing could be. What do you think the role of the art critic is or should be? I think one of the roles of the art critic is to keep all of us honest and on our toes. And for that, I think it's very important that the art critics are honest and on their toes. And I think we are at a very critical juncture in South Africa where it's not entirely clear. And, and art criticism is in trouble worldwide. I mean, even Magazine, which was probably my favorite art journal, just closed after 10 issues, um, which for me sort of, you know, we knew art criticism was dead, but now it's buried. It's really quite, quite tragic. But I think we've been seeing quite a bit of, of art writing that, that, looks maybe like criticism, but that turns out to be paid for by the person being reviewed or the gallery being reviewed. It's one thing if it happens in a publication that's done by the gallery, so it's announced up front or if there's a sort of a disclaimer at the bottom of the article, but I don't think that's always the case. And, and in a way, that's a symptom of art news, like newspapers just not having art critics anymore. I think, I mean, and that's, that's true worldwide. I think in the States, the number of daily newspapers with an art critic on staff is like, five and like 10 years ago it was 50 some some statistic like that i think jerry salt has thrown out there so the fact that you know i, I think the cape argus doesn't have a full-time art critic anymore and and neither does the cape times or, or the sunday times for that matter so i think that's why people have started looking for alternative models but it's a real problem if if i as a gallery am, am determining what gets written in the newspapers about the art being shown you spoke a bit about um, some local examples of publications that are engaging with the artist interview format, some to various degrees of success. Adjective, Art Throb, Art Africa, formerly Art South Africa. Yeah, what are your thoughts on, on those publications and what actually makes a successful artist interview? And I, I don't want to sit here and pick apart local publications. I think the more the better and I think they all serve a, serve a purpose. Um, I'm particularly excited about Artthrob and what it's doing, and I think Adjective and a few issues that has come out have, has really opened up a very important space. I'm very curious to see if there will be a next issue, but that's a topic for another podcast. But, you know, they're not... They're, I mean, Artthrob pays a little bit, but I think none of them can afford to pay what is needed to have consistently large quantities of quality art criticism. And even if they could, I don't know who'd write it because the number of people who are truly independent who are writing is not very big either. I think you made a really interesting point in your paper about using the artist interview in a very 
logistical way of not being able to afford to pay art critics and actually creating content, very, very interesting content through the artist interview as a format. I thought that was a really interesting point. And, you know, sometimes I've, I've been in those discussions. I've been just as guilty as everyone else. Like, oh, we still need a text for this catalog. Oh, let's just do an interview. And I think through studying the format, through reading a lot, through having done some artist interviews that really haven't worked myself, I've learned that it's not always, always the solution people think it is, but it's something you can do quite quickly because the artist is there. You can record the conversation, transcribe it. But it's not, it's not as... Doing an artist interview is very easy, but doing a good one is very hard. So what makes a good artist interview? I think this is a beautiful line by Betsy Sessler, who started Bomb Magazine, which is a, a journal entirely dedicated to artist interviews. Uh, she says, all, all one hopes for is a revelation or two. And I think that's very nice. It's, all you need is like just something small that you didn't think about before, that you didn't see before, uh, to slip out of an artist's mind or, or mouse, almost like you know, things falling out of our pockets. That said, there are some very clear things that are important to even get to that point. I think it's important that the interviewer is, is prepared, which they're often not, or that the interviewer has read all or at least most other interviews with this artist, that you're not asking the same question again, that you're familiar with the artist's work. It helps if there's some kind of rapport between, between the two. There are examples of, of amazing artist interviews where the two people have met for the first time. But by and large, the interviews that really sing and really become magical are interviews where there's some pre-existing relationship between the two parties. I mean, one interview I commissioned was Kesevan Naidu, the, the drummer, um, interviewing Nicholas Klobo. And they both grew up in the Eastern Cape around the same time. Uh, they both won the Standard Bank Award the same year, um, Kes for, for music and, and Nick for art. And they've actually collaborated on performances together. So once they started speaking, they had so much shared territory that it really became the most wonderful and very nuanced conversation. And they could, and you see this too when, when someone like Hans Ulrich Oberst interviews people he really knows well, when he's interviewing Rem Kohlhaas or Ai Weiwei or Oliver Eliasson. It's a totally different level of conversation than when he does yet another interview on stage at an art fair somewhere in, uh, somewhere in the world. Um, and then something needs to happen. Some kind of magic needs to happen. You just mentioned Hans Ulrich Obrist. I was about to ask about him. So, I mean, you speak about him quite a bit in, in relation to a seminal interview uh, with South African artist Ernest Mankoba. So Obrist is, I mean, very well known for his interviews. You said that he's probably recorded and published more artist interviews than anyone else in the world. What do you think that he contributes to this format? I think what he's really contributed is its, its popularity and visibility. And I think because of its ubiquitousness now, it's easy to forget how, how niche a format it really was once upon a time. Like in the 70s, when Avalanche started publishing artist interviews, they did it as a pushback to art criticism as it was being written, where the artist was being ignored by the critics. So it was this very small publication who was pushing this alternative way of seeing things, which Betsy Sessler bombed and then took over. And, and it really wasn't the norm. It was, it was a rarity. It was a revolution of sorts. And I think Hans Ulrich Obrist has gotten it to a point where, where the artist interview is, is, you know, it's something people know about, something that every art student has heard of as a format, has read, 
has popularized it in a way. And I think his role, he's also very good at playing that dual role of, of, of producing art criticism, but also primary source material. Because he interviews every, I mean, when he was in Cape Town, you know, we, we managed to do an interview with Peter Clark because he realized time was running out, which later proved to be, to be the case. And he'll go around and he's, he's also just trying to obsessively gather facts and gather these voices. He calls it a protest against forgetting. So he, he plays that dual role very well to, and, and probably more often functioned on the side of just recording history rather than, than you know, the book he did with Ai Weiwei, that's art criticism. But most of, his, most of his interviews are much more on the primary source material side. Do you think he employs empathy in his interviews? He always does. You know, whether he's always as prepared as one ideally should be for the best artist interviews, absolutely not. I think he'd be the first to admit that. He does always prepare and he always has notes and he knows who he's speaking to. But if you do the amount of artist interviews that he does, you can't know the practice of each artist you're speaking to as intimately as, as one might like. But there's, there's real empathy and real obsession and, and love for artists. You spoke just now about the interview that you commissioned with Nicolas Globeau. Can you speak a little bit more about the interviews that you commissioned around this research? And what were some of the insights that you gathered from, from the ones that you commissioned? So I, I commissioned a number of interviews with the view towards a book, sort of an anthology of South African artist interviews, which is still very much uh, an objective maybe not a priority. I think I, I underestimated the difficulty of the commissioning process because most of the interviews that I commission in my day job are with artists that I know really well and often by writers that I know pretty well. And there's some kind of leverage in the situation. A catalog needs to come out, an exhibition is about to open, the writer's getting, getting paid. So it's a situation that's, that I know quite well and is, is in large part controllable or the uncontrollable parts are one can, can know what the potential hiccups are. I think I underestimated the, the difficulty of commissioning an interview by an interviewer who I might know, not know that well with an artist who I might not know that well, where I don't know what the sensitivities are. Also made the mistake once or twice of paying the interviewer before the interview was handed back to me, um, which I'll never do again. So, so quite a few of the interviews took much longer to materialize. I'd also used quite a few young interviewers, and I think I, I underestimated the amount of experience it takes to really be a good interviewer. Some wonderful conversations, but they, they didn't sort of rise to that next level that one is looking for when you want to add something to the discourse. So it's been, it's been interesting, difficult, also getting then getting permission, because one of the sort of things to know about artist interviews, they're not, you know, between us it might seem obvious, but maybe to some listeners it isn't, they're not actual transcripts of a conversation that took place. In that sense, they're very, very different from podcasts. They're often very heavily edited, rewritten entirely, changed around, cut, chopped, glued back together, and only once the artist and the interviewer are 100% happy with the final text does it get published. That's a um, protocol initially set up by the Paris Review, um, who popularized the literary interview um, as a format. And, and most artist interviews still happen according to that same protocol. So commissioning artist interview, I mean, I, I remember one which I won't mention because it was never signed off by the, the interviewee, where I thought it was, it was one of the very first ones I commissioned, where I thought it was absolutely wonderful. 
I was quite a, a young artist interviewing a, a slightly older, more experienced artist. And to this day, I haven't had a sign-off from the artist and to use it. So it probably won't end up in the book, if the book ever gets made. And also sometimes a pairing might seem very obvious or it might seem logical and really not work, whereas other pairings of conversation partners might seem a bit more obscure and really create magic. So I think it's, it's, the commissioning process actually is, is, was a lot harder than I anticipated. Why didn't you do the interviews? What was it about commissioning other interviewers to do the, them that was important to you? A number, a number of things. The key reason, I think, is you know, the, the many debates about who is writing art criticism, uh, who has the right to speak for who, should be contributing to the discourse. A collection of artist interviews with different people asking the questions is, is a very efficient way to broaden the, the number of people speaking. So, I mean, at the most basic level, if I'd done all the, the interviews, it would have been another volume of, of a white guy asking a whole bunch of questions, which there's plenty of examples of out there in the world. So this, this was a really interesting way to... And, and, and some of the interviews, most of the interviews I've gotten back have been incredible. I would love to see a book on this. Make it happen. We'll, okay, we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Why did you choose the artists that you chose to interview? As part of my research, I ended up, I think, um, submitting six artist interviews really through chance and networks and, and availability. I probably commissioned about 10 of which I ended up submitting six. Some never were finished, some were ne never authorized, but it wasn't any sort of definitive selection. And I've, I've got a list of about 10 or 20 others I still want to commission. So you speak about this really heavy, heavy editing process. Um, what are the, the implications or the the ethics behind the editing process. I mean, how genuine is that interview after it's been heavily edited? And what is your opinion on something like the live interview, a podcast that is pretty much unedited? I take out some of the stupid things I say every now and again. But um, yeah. So and some of the stupid things I say. <laughs> I, think, I think it's important. I think the, the, the main difference is a podcast is a form of journalism and artist interview, the written artist interview isn't, or not the way... I've written about it or studied or used it or the way I employ it. So I, I, I don't, since the final text is always the objective, the ethics sort of don't matter. If anything, artists might speak a little bit more freely if they know they can edit anything they want afterwards. And since there's no pretense that that final, that that final text is a transcript of an actual conversation that happened, I think those ethics are, are almost irrelevant. It's like you're writing a text together but you're using conversation to do it. It's not like you're misrepresenting what was actually said, because it's not, yeah, it's, 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 not, a, it's not journalism. Yeah, but there's, a, there's a, I suppose, a level of self-censorship that happens in that editing process. Are we getting the real, the real information? No, you're not, you're not, you're not seeing the, the paintings that didn't work either. I don't really think there is an issue if one doesn't pretend that that text is the record of an actual conversation. Then I really think, you know, it's, it's all fair game. It certainly gives artists an amount of freedom to really get their point across that, that would be missing in a situation like this. Of course, it's interesting that the, the protocol comes from the literary interview, and I think the, there's many parallels, but the one big difference is that for, for writers, words are their, metier, are their medium. So I think for them, it was even more important, because if, if you're misusing words in an interview as a writer, you're sort of getting the thing you do wrong. For artists, it's less of an issue because words are secondary to the objects that are being made. 
So in a way, it's maybe something we've inherited from the literary interview that is not as central to the artist interview. But I don't think there's, I don't think it's dishonest in, in any way. Where, where it gets really interesting, where it gets a bit nerdy, um, is the Bomb magazine archives have been donated or housed at Columbia University. So in theory, one can go into the archive and get a hold of the original transcript because all the editing rounds are in there. So the stuff that the artists were told would never be published without their sign-off, the process of creating that final text is now... Again, in theory, you have to go to Columbia, sit in, the, sit in the university library and spend some time going through all kinds of files. But in theory, it's, it's accessible. So one could find the things that the artists have edited out. And that's probably an interesting PhD in itself. Is that the next step? No. <laughs> um, PhD, yes, but not, not on that topic. So just to, to draw back to the beginning, you said you're an avid consumer and producer of the artist interview. Um, do you listen to art podcasts and, and what are some of your favorites? I do. There, there are not very many good ones. And I'm just opening the app on my phone to make sure I'm not, not forgetting any. Um, there's not very many good. Probably my favorite one at the moment is something called Collect Wisely, um, in which Sean Kelly, who is just an absolute hero, art dealer, art gallerist really from, from New York, represented Marina Abramovich from the very start, amongst many other things. And he has a podcast where he interviews collectors about collecting. And it's such a wonderful idea on, on so many levels. I love listening to it because I, you know, I speak to collectors for a living. And to hear their motivation and their insecurities and their discoveries and why they collect because i think we often have this ideal image of why someone should be buying contemporary art but in real life there's many reasons why people ended up doing this but at the same time yes there there are people with resources who are who don't necessarily know much about art but there are people who decided to buy contemporary art with those resources and that means it's already quite a quirky unusual subset of people because you know you could be you could be buying boats or anything else watches or giving it all to to a soup kitchen but these are people who've decided i've got everything and now really what i want to do is buy things like that meshagaba painting that's sitting in the corner of this room so they're really wonderful people to listen to so that's that's probably my favorite art podcast at the moment then there's in other words which is very interesting in relation to the discussion we had about who's paying for art criticism because I have it on pretty good authority that, that she is, I think Charlotte Burns is her name. She actually has complete freedom to do whatever she wants, interview whoever she wants, say whatever she wants. I, I don't for one minute doubt that that's the case. At the same time, her salary is paid for by um, art agency partners, which is owned by Sotheby's. So, you know, the same way that, that, that Gagosian has a quarterly art journal, uh, Hauser and Ruth are starting an art magazine that's even going to be available on newsstands. I think Gagosian is only by subscription. So even there, at that level, we're seeing that who's paying for art criticism is slowly changing. So, you know, the sort of Marxist in me is skeptical of, of a podcast ultimately produced by Sotheby's. But I've listened to a number of them and they're wonderful and she's incredibly knowledgeable and you can tell that she's asking the right questions and because of who she is and probably partly who pays her bills, she has access to anyone and everyone. So she's interviewed Roberta Smith, she's interviewed Richard Armstrong from the Guggenheim, Jessica Morgan from DIA. So that's, that's a really wonderful one. Um, and then there's this, this amazing local um, podcast called Unframed, you might have heard of it, um, that I've started listening to. 
Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great chatting and I'm excited to see your book. No pressure. I shouldn't have mentioned that. <laughs> thank you to Yus for sharing his time with me and his insights in this very interesting research that he's done. Don't forget to follow Unframed on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe to Unframed on iTunes. Leaving a review would be great too because it helps other people find the podcast. And please check out the show notes where I've included Yust's recommendations of art podcasts that he listens to. Thanks for being here. See you next time. Bye. <music>